Well, let's uh, let's go before the Lord and uh, ask His blessing on our time in the Word, and then we'll be in Acts chapter 17 as we continue our study about Paul in Athens. And so let's go to our to our Savior. Our Father, we are uh, we are truly blessed to have the privilege of assembling together with, as your people in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that we might uh, learn of your holiness, of your power, of your infinity, that we might, and the more that we learn of you, the more that we might uh, appropriately worship you, you who are worthy of all praise. And Father, we recognize that in our imperfection and weakness and sin that we're not able to give you all the praise that is due unto your name. And yet you are so gracious to accept the sacrifice of our lips giving thanks to your name. And that's because of Christ, our only Redeemer. We thank you for the time, uh, and we thank you for your word, the truth, the eternal truth that you have inscripturated for us that we might grow thereby. May we behold the Savior in the word of God today, not only in this hour, but in the hour of time. And may we worship you as your people, and may you be pleased. In Christ's name, amen. We have a guest today, uh, Rob from Tulsa, is Jessica's father, Jessica and Kale, that are here. He's down from uh, Tulsa, I think I said that already, to uh, take care of some business and uh, had a great visit with, with him this morning. And so I want you to meet him as you have an opportunity and um, be a blessing to him as, as uh, Jessica and Kale have been to us. Well, we're in Acts 17, and let's begin by reading verse 28. 28. Let's read down to verse 34. May get to verse 34 today, Lord willing. So it says there, as Paul's in the middle of his discourse, For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all, everywhere, should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. We had said, the reason I included verse 28-29, we said last time in verse 30, that God had allowed for a time the nations uh, to grope and in the darkness of their own imagination, in their own uh, uh, religious ideas, um, and that they might grope and, and find him if they were uh, of a mind to do so, and yet he's not far from any one of us. It is a little bit of a puzzle to us, isn't it, why God would for so long, for such so many years in human history, generally leave uh, the nations of the world in that uh, 
futility of their mind. It's not that they're without excuse, it says in Romans 1, right? Because the creation itself, as we have looked at, does declare the glory of God and even his divine attributes, his power and his, his greatness and his diversity. But he did not intervene in the way that he has since Christ came. He did not shake them out of their darkness except to work through the nation of Israel and the prophets in particular. That shows to me, while we might revolve many, many questions around in our mind as to why, it shows to me the greatness of our God. It also shows me that and reminds me that the scriptural uh, teaching that God owes no man anything. A lot of times when we think of how God deals with humanity in different portions of history, we think of it in the human terms of obligation. God would be obligated to do the same or or do this and that for every one of his creatures alive. But that's simply not what the scripture teaches, is it? God is under no compulsion from outside himself to do anything. No one puts pressure on God. No one brings God under debt or obligation. And so when you back up and you think in those terms, you think, now wait a minute, maybe my thinking needs to be molded and shaped in, into a different direction. Of course, we... Um, you know, we might never get resolved on all of those things. But, but we talked about the one grand duty of all mankind uh, since Christ has come and declared with brilliant clarity the, the person of God, the nature of God. And that is, in verse 30, the last part, he declares to all men uh, everywhere that they should repent. And, uh, and, and he's declaring it. It's, it's, uh, as I was visiting with Rob just before Sunday school, it's not a suggestion. It's not an offer, although we do, in a sense, uh, uh, offer the gospel. But from God's point of view, it's a command. He's commanding all men everywhere to repent. And since God is commanding all men everywhere to repent, we then go to them with the gospel. The good news is that while God has commanded under the authority of heaven all men everywhere to repent, and so there are no exceptions to that, the good news of the gospel is Christ has satisfied the righteous demands of God on our behalf, believing in him to bring us into favorable relationship with the one who is demanding that justice be done, that is the gospel. All right? But why? Why repent? Why have a, a soul reformed after the uh, nature of God by believing in Christ? Why do that and why now? Well, Paul tells us, beginning in verse 31, several reasons why all men everywhere are commanded in these last days. And the first is because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world. Because the day is fixed. If you're enumerating points, if this was a little bit different than the Sunday school format, I might say there's, there's three reasons. The first reason is because the day is fixed. The day of judgment. Remember, we won't look at it, but in Second Peter, we studied not, not too long ago, about Peter's eschatology and how Peter uh, saw, uh, based on what he wrote there, that there, we're in the last days now. We're not waiting for the last days, but we're in the last days with the, the plural S. But there is a day singular coming, the day of Christ, the day of judgment, the day of eternity. If you look back at that passage in chapter 3 of Second Peter, you'll be reminded of that. We're in those last days, but there's a day which is fixed. Now, it's known only unto God, of course, but we are encouraged, just feel encouraged this last week in the study of Matthew, that the day is at hand, and that for each generation, we are to be ready, because we don't know the exact day and hour, 
but we're to always be ready in a prepar and a preparatory, spiritually prepared sense, and and prepared, armed with the gospel, and and uh, the zeal that should accompany that type of uh, mindset. So the day is fixed, and it's a day of righteousness. It says there that, that he will judge the world on that day in righteousness. Now, righteousness is the standard of the judgment that is to come. If you think that God may grade on a curve in that day, you would be sadly mistaken. Or if you think that he might uh, be willing to overlook certain things uh, and faults and and uh, sins, then sadly mistaken, because the standard is God's absolute righteousness. And that brings us to another uh, attribute that we'll probably end up studying a little bit of, and that is that God is just. Is that about 13 or so? I don't know if, if you're, it's, it doesn't matter if you keep the exact number that we've been uh, uh, talking about as we go. At first, when I first started studying, I saw around 16, and as I, we've kind of gone through the study, I've kind of uh, compressed a few of those that were very, very similar, so it may not be exactly 16, but somewhere around the 13th one we've, we've enumerated, God is just, meaning that he speaks and acts always in accordance with his holy nature. So what God says is right or righteous or just, and what he does is also right or just. God is not dealing with us in terms of human fairness. We might make our own standard of what's fair. I might be the arbiter in my family as a father. Uh, I might say, well, this is what's fair in this situation. And that's fine because I'm the head of my household. But I'm not the head of the world. I'm not the judge of all mankind. And so it is up to his determination of what is right and just and appropriate that we'll uh, all have to give an account uh, before him. So when he speaks and when he acts, it's in accordance with his own holy nature. So whatever God does and says is right. There's a hymn that we sing sometimes in our hymn book. Whatever God ordains is right. And that's true. But whatever God says or does is right. So wouldn't that be the best measure of how we think in terms of what God is doing and not doing and, and how we may you know, perceive it? Should we not always begin at the fact that whatever God does is right and then move from there into our own perception of, of our life? And God's dealings with humankind. I think it's a much easier, much more stable place to begin from. All right, so why repent? Why now? Paul says, first of all, because the day is fixed. I mean, God knows the day, and there is a day that is coming, and it is fast approaching, when God is going to judge all mankind. With that in mind, there is the necessity, the urgency of being ready for it. There's a second reason he gives there in verse 31, why repent, why now? And that's because he is appointed a man as judge. A judge is appointed. Not only is the day of judgment fixed and soon approaching, but the judge has been appointed. And it says, through a man whom he has appointed. Now, in my Bible, which is New American Standard, man is capitalized. Does anybody else have any indication, maybe, in your, in your translation, as that's more than just speaking of man in general, but it's a specific man? Study note says so, well good. That's good. That's, what does it say? Go ahead if you don't mind, Barbara. Okay. That's a good Bible. They agree with me. <laughs> no, that's true. That you know, 
they're they're seeing there maybe what the translators in the American Standard saw, and what all of you can obviously see. And that's it's not just a man. It's not just saying a man in general, but he's pointing to the man, the specific man, uh, the God man, Christ Jesus, and um, and that day is command. We're commanded to repent because that day is approaching. It's a fixed day. It's a fixed judge. So you can see, picture in your mind that the courtroom of heaven is being prepared. Remember, Jesus said, "I go to prepare a place for you." Um, and that if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. And that's true, it gives us a lot of comfort in the sense of knowing we'll be with God in a place he's prepared. But also picture in your mind, if you will, the scene of the courtroom of heaven, the great bar of God's righteous ultimate judgment. The day is fixed, the courtroom is set, the judge is appointed. And, and that boy. <laughs> You think, oh wow! I mean, that that brings to mind a, a, an awful, awesome scene, and, and it does. And it's meant to to think that the judge, with absolute righteousness, will call all mankind into an accounting on that day. Um, and he's accredited by God. He's the one that has been appointed. If you look in Acts chapter two, verse twenty-two and following. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 uh, to 24. You see the emphasis here, or part of the emphasis that God has placed upon the man, Christ Jesus, to be the judge of all men. And that says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you, you may also say accredited by God. With miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, again pointing to him and him only, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So he's the man accredited or appointed or uh you know god's got the judge and and it's this man the man christ jesus he's the man put forth in, in front of all of us and god's not keeping that a secret you know we don't have to wonder who the judge will be at the end of time it's it's declared to be jesus christ the one who walked among us the one who paid for our sins the one who was crucified by wicked hands and yet god's approval and accrediting of this man, his righteousness, raised him up again as a glorious testimony before all men that this man who's been raised from the dead will judge all men who will eventually be raised from the dead as well. So the character of the judge is just and righteous, just like the day of judgment will be a righteous judgment. So that's why I repent, because the day is fixed and the judge is appointed. And he gives a third reason there, though, if you come back to Acts 17, Verse 31, not only is the day fixed and the judge is appointed, but he's furnished proof how that he's been raised from the dead. The proof is given that the day of judgment is approaching and that the judge is fixed because he raised Christ from the dead, giving singular proof without dispute of God's approval of Christ, as I've said. And not only that, but I think the connection is that he's showing God's power over death and hell. Now, he, Paul was speaking to some Athenian philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics, 
In particular, Epicureans did not believe in an afterlife, did they? They believed in some, just you just went out of existence. The body deteriorated and that was the end of you. So they don't believe that anybody had power over the ultimate to them was to die, right? The end of the story. But Paul is pointing out that the one who created life is also master and lord over death and over hell and over the afterlife. And the power that he has is to not only raise Christ to be the singular judge and the firstborn among all the dead, but that he's going to raise every man, woman, boy, and child, boy and girl, I should say, to stand before him. And I think the connection here with, with the proof that's furnished of Christ's resurrection and the power over the grave is seen in John 5. So let's, let's look at just a couple of places where it help us to make that connection without going on too often much. John 5, uh, verse. if somebody will read verses 21 to 24 in uh, John 5, I would appreciate that. connection that, that I believe Paul is alluding to in, in Acts uh, 17, and that is that the Father has given all judgment to the Son, that it might be an honor to the Son. You know, the, the power of being the, the, the one who declares the destiny of all mankind in a righteous manner has been given over, if you will, to the Son, that the Son might be honored. Now, if we honor the Son by believing in His Word, we pass from underneath the wrath of God that we rightly deserve to the favor of God. And it says there in verse 24, the one who hears his word and, and believes him who sent me, that's the judge, Christ himself, that one who believes has eternal life and he doesn't come into judgment. And so that's the connection I believe that Paul has in mind in Acts when he's saying that the proof is furnished that the day is fixed and the judge is set because he raised him from the dead and declared him to be the judge and Lord over all mankind, who will also be raised. Does that seem like a natural connection to you, not, not forced? Seems so to me. So, uh, you know, on hearing and believing Jesus, you would not enter into judgment. And I think that that's one of the elements of the gospel that's missing today. We, we talk about the love of God, say we, in the general sense of the church. I think we here maybe uh, might do a little bit better job than that, hopefully, and, and praise God if we do. We ought to. But I think the missing element of the gospel today is that God is the judge, and judgment is approaching, and that we are rightfully and naturally in Adam under the wrath of God. But by believing in Christ, then, God would reconcile us to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we would come out from underneath that judgment. So it's not just an, uh, you know, it's not just God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which I heard so often as I was growing up in church. 
you know, in a big sense, it's true. God does love you and have a plan for your life. If you are believing in Christ, I might add. You know, I don't know that being condemned to an eternity in hell for your sins is a wonderful plan. It's a just plan. It's appropriate. God has declared it to be so upon mankind who do not, do not believe in Christ. No matter how we might challenge that thought. But I don't know that you can say it's wonderful. What is wonderful, though, is though we are sinners under the wrath of God in Jesus Christ, we can come out from under the judgment of Christ having paid for our sins. And what does it say in Romans 5? Therefore, having been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. So, any thoughts? That's a pretty thought-provoking, isn't it? Pretty. There's a lot of things in there that can really grade against the old, the old, um, old man, you know, even in a renewed sense, even in a scriptural sense. Sometimes don't we, don't we wrestle with some of those doctrines quite a bit? I mean, I say I do, just being honest with you. We wrestle with them not in the sense of disbelieving the Word of God or trying to ch change, you know, any of that, but we just recognize that there are things God is doing, has done, and is doing that uh, that He's not negotiable on. He's declared them. This is how it is, Ron. Now, what do you do in response to that? So that's kind of the, that's the thing. And of course, God is loving and God is compassionate. And God knows our frame that we are but thus. But all things considered, there's there's a, there's a line, you know? There's a line drawn. And, and when we move beyond or outside of God's righteous justice and judgment, when we go beyond that, then we are under the wrath of God. All right. Um, maybe one more. I said two scripture. Uh, Ephesians one, in connection with raising Christ from the dead, and how I think Paul is trying to bring to their mind uh, the great power that's involved, the power that God has to do as He wills to do. Ephesians one. 19 to 23. It says in verse 19, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So there's speaking of the resurrection of Christ in connection with our salvation, that the great power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the seat of power and put all things in subjection under him is also the power that we are enlivened with, the power of God to raise the dead. It's truly raised us from the deadness of our sin and our opposition to God uh, to know and love our God and our Savior. And uh, that great power continues in us, not only now, but forever and ever. And so there's the connection of the resurrection of the dead and, and the enthronement of Christ as King. So I think that's a thing throughout the New Testament we can find. There's a lot of places we could go to look at that. So, brings up one more attribute of God we can talk about, and that is God's omnipotence. omnipotence. We talked about his infinity, 
And, and they're, they're akin to one another for sure. But omnipotence, omni and potent, means that God is able to do all he wants to do. Uh, there's, there's nothing withholding him whatsoever except the perfection of his own nature, as, as with all his attributes. I think it was Jay that mentioned a couple of weeks ago in connection with trying to kind of separate the attributes of God. And, and he reminded me of, of, of something that's very true as we look at this, and that's that God is not set, made up of separate components or attributes. God is, and the theologians call it, the simplicity of God. Not simplicity like, you know, simple Simon, but simplicity in the fact that God is not composed of many parts. He cannot be divided. God is undivided and infinite one in three unique persons. And yet, we have, to, we have to look at, we have to separate in our thinking in order to understand somewhat of his greatness, these different attributes, because it's just overwhelming to, to do it otherwise. And so we think of his power that he has to do anything he wills to do, and we think about his omnipresence, where he's present everywhere at the same moment, when we think about his omniscience, his, his knowledge of, of all things that can be known, we have to divide those up about God so that we can begin to kind of get a better grasp on them. We can compare to things that we know and, and begin to, to think of it. But the God is not, on the one hand, omnipresent over here, omniscient over here. Uh, what's another one? <laughs> omniscient and wise. Just, good, all the, you know, he is one and the same. He is all of those things to their fullest and not to be separated. So, again, language probably fails me. A better teacher could probably uh, give, you know, a better uh, clarification to some of those things when describing the nature of God. But we all come to an end of ourselves eventually. You know, our language uh, will fail us to describe the indescribable. You know, can you imagine a college professor in a theological seminary saying, okay, your first assignment is to describe God, <laughs> you know? Wow, well, you know, okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you're looking for, but, well, he is, he's omnipresent, you know? Well, yeah, that's not all. Well, he's omnipotent, well, that's not all. He's omniscient, you know? And, you know, you just all know, no, no, And then you haven't, as Job says, begun to know the life of it. All these are parts of this way. Says Job. We know everything we can know about God. All it's all of his part. But the part we know is glorious. Okay? So, why repent? We'll come back to Acts 17. Why repent? Why now? He said in verse 31, because the day of judgment is fixed. The judge is set and ready for judgment, and the proof is furnished that God has appointed and glorified Christ as a judge over all mankind because he's been raised from the dead the first will all be raised from the dead and will stand before him, as the scripture says. Now, our faith as Christians is distinguished from the pagans, the heathen. Why? Because they had a multiplicity of gods of their own making, some superstition, some mythology, some of their own, everything kind of thrown into this big soup and, and swirled about, and you just scoop out a part of it, and there you go. That's your religion. That's your worship. That's kind of how Athens was during that time. It's kind of how America is becoming today, isn't it? As the influence of the Christian gospel is waning upon our culture. It's just kind of a mix of and all of these things mixed together and just take out a little bit here and there like a buffet at, at a 
the cafeteria. You, you like that, but you don't like that, so you pass that part over, but you, you're going to get a double part of this because that one really makes you feel good. That's your religion. But our faith is distinguished from that in that amongst the polytheism and, 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 and heathenism that was all around Paul, he declared one mediator. He declared one person that would be the judge of all mankind. He declared one righteousness that he achieved by his living and dying on our behalf. One faith in one person, his atonement for sin, his resurrection for our justification, which points us to our own resurrection at the last day, his spirit alone by whom we are renewed and preserved, his kingdom now, his kingdom forever, his judgment on the last day, you see, that's what distinguishes the Christian message from, you know, the confusion that you find in every other religion. And unfortunately, from some of the confusion that you're finding mixed in with, the, with what is called Christianity. Okay. So it presents a challenge to us, doesn't it? The challenge is to know the Word of God, to know our God, and to... Communicate that as effectively as we possibly can to our children, to our friends, to our world, and uh, those before us. We do that as a church. I mean, it's a goal of Phil and Jay, and a goal of all of us that belong to this church to to try to be that light to our community, to to hold to the faith once for all for the saints. And that's and that's what we're trying to do. Okay, good. I thought I was out of time, but look at all the time we've got. All right. Verse, verse 32 and following then. So, God's declaring, verse 30, every man is without excuse, all must repent. Verse 31, Paul gives us the reasons. Now verse 32 is the response. And um, the responses vary, as you, can, as you have yourself experienced. The same apostle, right, Paul, he spoke the same words, and we don't know how many people were there, but he spoke the same words with the same zeal, the same compassion for people, the same desire in his heart that they come to know the God that they did not know. He said, the, the unknown God is the one I'm bringing to your attention. The one you don't know is the one you ought to know, the God who created everything. So he brings all this with the force of his uh, human passions and love for them and the compulsion of preaching the gospel as he was commanded to do as an apostle. But the human hearts were very different that heard that, weren't they? <coughs> Especially what brought it to a point, I think, as he was going along there was when he spoke of the resurrection of the dead. See, it says that, verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of, dead, of the dead, then, that, then the responses were evoked. So, I mean, you know, it's almost like, there's, I was thinking of this in terms, I was sharing the gospel with somebody uh, this past week, and I was thinking of it in terms of, of, you know, I said a lot of things that they kind of, they were kind of going like this about, you know, and, and then when you finally get to the crux of the matter, then their demeanor changes. It's like there's some things that in general, and we, we want to, we want to get develop a relationship with people and a rapport with them. We want to commun communicate with them. We want to just defend them right from the start. I think that's bad tactics. I, I, I don't agree with those that, that go out and, and hit you over the head with the Bible for the first time they meet you. And
and say, believe in <coughs> believe in your parish. Um, there may be a place for that. May God give us grace to know when that is. I think in most cases, at least it's been true with me and with my family that I've observed, it's the, it's the people that God has placed in our lives and in our path, wherever that may be, that we are already in some type of rapport with that we're able to share the gospel with. Now, we have to go out and share it with strangers, and and we'll have those random encounters. And sometimes urgency necessitates this might be the only chance I ever get to tell this person, and so there may be a little bit more directness. But it always must be covered with compassion and love. Uh, but so I think that in, in, you know, in my life, I'm just saying, and it may not be true with you, but in my life, most of the time. The effective communication happens because of people that God has placed there, not just the random chance happening. And I've never, when my spirit has been critical, when my spirit has been, you know, wrong about presenting the gospel, almost never any response. But in different circumstances, uh, just communicating with people over time, it seems that God uses that. God did. God that brings men to himself, not not our uh, not our attitudes, but they certainly make a difference. Well, I was just saying that bringing bringing up certain things, you get to a point. I guess where I started was you get to a point where where it's going to evoke a response. You know, if we said, "Well, you know, you ought to go to church," that's kind of a general statement. You ought to believe in God. Kind of a general statement. And you know, too many people really believe. But if you said Jesus Christ is Raised from the dead, Lord and Judge of all. And now you've got the specific. Now, whoa, wait a minute, hold, you know, you must believe in Christ and Christ alone. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. No other name. Oh, there's a lot of religions in the world. A lot, a lot of them are older Christianity, you know, you've heard it. So you've gotten to a point where the word, which is true, has penetrated the mind and conscience of a person provoking a response. So the resurrection of the dead is one of those things. Obviously with the Athenians, that, uh, when they heard of that, <laughs> they began to respond. If they weren't already before. I have a feeling some of them were fidgeting anyway as Paul was bringing all these great doctrines to life. But that was that was the thing. That was the point that the Spirit really got. Got them in the heart. Didn't it? Now, they did not all respond believing but they were all pricked by the conscience. And so keep that in mind as you share the gospel. You may walk away feeling like, oh, I missed an opportunity. Maybe, you know, God, um, you know, whatever the case may be, on the human, from the human eyes that we look at these uh, sharing times of sharing the gospel and preaching the gospel, that know that the word of God spoken in love always pricks the heart and the conscience. It always does. Always. And conscience may be very dead in the heart of the sinner. And Satan may come along like the bird. And get the seeds on the side of the road and fly away, but they hear more than they acknowledge. And so we are encouraged to share the gospel. So let's look at the responses, and the best one, of course, is the believing response, which we know will always happen. But the first, some heard with incredulous hearts. Verse thirty-two: When some heard, they began to sneer uh, or mock. The word "sneer" is kind of a modern word in, in my in my eyes. Maybe it's not, but you know, kind of a almost like a snarl of a you know. Growl. My little grandson was growling at me last night. He's he, he he came up to the recliner and I was sitting there and we'd watched him all day and he came up and went, 
And so I jumped back like I was like, you really got me. And he just laughed. He just busted out laughing. And so for the next 15 minutes, you know what we did, you know. But, but that's what it kind of reminds you of, you know. You're preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, and you, you get this. You know, mocking and sneer like, ah, here he goes, resurrection of the dead. You know, that I'm going to be judged for what I do in this life. You see the cynicism, the, the mocking, the sneering that comes from the, the sinful human heart. And as I said earlier, I think many of the Epicureans who, who we had encountered and, and they had gone with him to hear the matter, you know, they had invited Paul to the Areopagus. Let's, let's, let's get this thing more official. Let's, let's have a public hearing and let's just see what you're all about. You know, you're, you're bringing up some things that are very strange to our ears. This isn't just normal new God stuff, you know. Somebody, you know, Joe's got a new God, a new deity. Oh, who is it? Okay, fine. Add it to the rest of the deities. Now, they wanted to hear this because there was something to it. So the Stoics and Epicureans, they were there along with others that had gathered. And the Epicureans in particular had denied for over 300 years since the, their founding uh, that there was any afterlife at all. And so it would have gone against their predispositions and all, all that they taught and their preconceived notions that one, Christ had already raised from the dead and that all men would eventually be raised by him. That the one great authority and king over all mankind who is now raised from the dead would give a call and have the power and ability to raise all humankind of all history by the word that he spoke. That was the biggest, oh, no, no, no. So they mocked and they were incredulous about it. And then some said, heard with a procrastinating heart. Verse 32 says, And others said, We shall hear you again concerning this matter. How many times in the New Testament was the gospel preached to important people, important in society, you know, we say influential people, and they sat back and they said, Yeah, I think I'm interested in that, but I'm not interested enough to believe and embrace it or change anything about myself. But, but it's very interesting. I'd like to hear it again sometime. I could hear you at a more convenient season. It's just not the right time for me right now, Paul. You know, I'm having a bad, I'm having a bad time. I've got financial issues. You know, I've got, a, I've got a, a government to run, a company to run. I've got a family to raise. I've got, I've got this and that and the other thing. You know, I've got to go and bury my father. And, you know, I've got business to attend to. And one of these days, if the time is right, I'll give that serious consideration. You know, we hear often. We as humans here with procrastinating hearts, even as Christians, sometimes we have to guard against hearing the word of God, which is to our blessing and correction and benefit, our edification. We cannot hear with a heart that says, when it's convenient for me, I'll make that change in my life. It may not be convenient for you. Now, when you're talking about eternal life, you certainly have to be careful there. Because it may not be a season in which it's convenient for you to hear. They said they'll hear again. I think this is probably mostly the Stoics who did believe in an afterlife of some form. So they would they wouldn't have immediately just said no, 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 no. But they said that's interesting, Paul. We don't really believe it. It's not worthy of accepting, but it's interesting. We'll hear you again. Verse thirty-three, though, it, it says that Paul went out of their midst. We don't know that those people ever heard the gospel again. Maybe they did, but we don't know that. 
And we don't have any biblical evidence that I could find that any of those people there that were either the first group or just outright mocked or the second group and said, hmm, I'll hear some more of that later. We don't have any evidence that any of them were ever converted. And I think it's more than just geography in verse 33 when it says Paul went out of their midst. Don't you think it's a statement of the scripture analogous to the fact that Paul had before them spoken the truth about God and about their responsibility to that creator and when they said no to it, Paul went out of their midst. In other words, the word of God, the truth of God was taken away from them because they rejected it. I think there's some symbolism in that falling out of their midst. That you're not getting the sense that this was their last opportunity? Uh, no, I'm not getting the sense that uh, they had rejected. I'm getting the sense that the ones that were mocking were rejected. Right. But I, I, I can't help it. I'm getting the sense that they wanted to know more. And they actually, uh, and if they truly wanted to know more, they were going after him. They, they wanted to hear it more about it. Because the Holy Spirit speaks His word, and, and He says that His conscience will prove that. But they just went up with a conviction of God and wanted it more. Yeah. You know, or they're thinking, oh, you know, there's something wrong. So they want to know more. Yeah, I don't doubt. I, I agree with you uh, in some sense, Sandra, that they, they, they were sincere in wanting to hear him again. I think they did, and for whatever that reason was. I'm just suggesting there's a possibility that that, that because they did not follow him, he, they did not repent and believe as he just commanded them to do. There's no evidence that they ever did ultimately. Now, we hope in God's grace that, that they did. Well, but we just don't know. Right. And I, I always think of, in terms of, uh, of that, I think of in Revelation where it talks about God giving men time and space to repent in, in the sense that God is patient. And so, uh, you know, yes. We and I, I agree with, with that. I just didn't get that same sense. Not, not in this one. <laughs> now, in Revelation, yes, I if God were not patient, then none would have time and space to repent, and so we well, want to be in. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And that's why we never, we never write anybody off. Even, even there, in Paul's mind, I'm sure that he would have been hoping that more would have repented and believed, and possibly they would in the future. Uh, I think I think about uh, Paul going out of their midst somewhat like he does. Is it later in eighteen? No, I think it may be before. I'll have to look back. I didn't I didn't have it prepared beforehand. Where was it when you know Paul's custom was to go to the synagogue of the Jews and to preach the gospel, which he was commanded to do, go to the Jew first. He was he was doing that even in the transitional period of the of the early church. But Paul made a clear delineation at one point and because the Jews kept rejecting and opposing the gospel of course he was led to the spirit to do this he didn't just humanly say I don't know the Jews I mean he was led to the, the spirit to do this but he said that's that 
from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles, and they'll believe. So, I guess, Sandra, that's kind of the sense in which I'm saying it. It's not that on any particular individual case we would say that there's no hope at all because they rejected it at that moment and Paul walked away. But I'm just saying that in our sense of, of presenting the gospel or even believing and receiving it, we always tend to think, ah, there's a lot of time. There's, you know, at a better season, when, thing, when the timing's right, the circumstances are right, that's, that's when I'll make these changes. That's when I'll obey the will of God. We don't know that that time is going to be coming. Because it is his time. The power, it's as it was with Paul there, uh, you know, he preached the same message to them. He had multiple reactions. The power is not false persuasion, although he did try to persuade them. The power is in the gift of the Spirit to, to bless the ears uh, of the fallen that we might hear the truth and be converted. In the blessing? Oh, I well, yes, I do. I think it's. I think in verse thirty-one, I think it's to be to be drawn. You, you say implicit. I think. I think to point to the day of judgment in general is a warning, you know, to all mankind. And so I think that that there's no escaping the fact. That if you reject Christ, ultimately you'll stand before God in judgment in the sense of being condemned. So that, to me, is is definitely what Paul is bringing out, and and it's uncompromising in the sense that that day is fixed and the judge is fixed. Now, you know, and I think all I'm saying is in their responses, I'm trying to encourage us. And back then, he wouldn't have said that there's a lot of time. Don't worry about it right now. He would have impressed upon them because that day is approaching and they don't know the day and the hour that, you know, the urgency of it. So, yeah, I think so. Thank you. You always have an implicit warning when the scriptures have contrast with responses. Uh, read this come away with the sense that there is a contrast between those who believe and join with them, and those who mock, or even those who said, well, here's more of us, what do you think? That's all the passage says, and you really can't. It's inconclusive about those people, but there's certainly a contrast at that point between them and those who believe and join. And so I think in that is a warning that they're you know, here, they have, you know, the gospel is presented. Uh, because in this case, Paul left, right? I 
There may have been some believing persons converted there that stayed and continued the conversation. But this narrative, this story is moving along to the conclusion. Moving it all along the way. There's contrast between the two types of people, those who hear and believe and those who don't. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So it's a, it's it brings a sense of urgency. I think and if we come away with it in, in, with that sense, I think we've understood it rightly. All right. Well, our time is up. Thank you for your input, uh, your your thoughtfulness.